0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in Peter Gray, a professor of political science at McMaster University. Uh, there's so much to talk about, I'm not sure where I'm going to start. Peter, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Yeah,
1: my pleasure.
0: So, um, you're a political science professor. So, I, before we even get to what we called you about regarding Kathleen Wynne and, and so on and so forth, what is your take on the whole alternative facts argument where, uh, I guess, uh, it's sort of looking, I, the analogy that uh, Kellyanne Conway, I think, used was the glass being half full and half empty. Some view it half full, some view it half empty. How how, how are you digesting all of this?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, we're
1: seeing, uh, I mean, as much as the right often talked about the moral relativism of the left, uh, we have a right that's now seeing that it can do quite well if it uh, really tries to say there's no basis of facts that, you know, there's these multiple realities, and uh, if there's something that you don't like, then you make up your own version of the story, and uh, it's as true as the other. So, I mean, in the sense uh, of someone who studies politics, uh, you know, it's a dangerous moment. I mean, we can say people have rights to their own their own arguments, but they don't have their rights to their own facts. But uh, that seems to be a kind of quaint and dated view in the view of many of our politicians at the moment. Uh, you know, and to the extent that there's such a multiplicity of news sources out there, Uh, you get uh, a lot being printed, which, you know, is not that factual. And uh, in the process, uh, citizens come to dismiss everything as somehow being slanted and incomplete rather than, you know, making the distinctions between more trustworthy and less trustworthy sources of news.
0: Will the public buy into the whole idea of alternative facts, that the fact is how you see it?
1: Uh, I think political partisans will. Uh, I mean, I think the public has some common sense. I mean, they can see with their own eyes whether, you know, whether the dog caught the car or didn't catch the car. Uh, It's not that it exists in two, you know, sets of stories. Uh, I'm not in the NHL as much as, you know, the young version of myself wanted to do that. I can't invent a world of alternative facts where, you know, I'm there scoring goals. Uh, I mean, so I think in that way, uh, I don't think the public will buy it. Uh, but they may be, you know, politically, it's, you don't have to go quite as far as to get people to buy that. You just have to get them to begin to think, well, I mean, the facts don't seem to matter anymore. Uh, and then they won't actually apply and discipline the politicians based on the facts of whether they're telling the truth or, you know, making stuff up. They just will will treat all politicians as the same. So, you know, I mean, you may not have to convince uh, citizens of uh, the fact that there's you no know, alternative facts or, you know, no real basis of truth. I think all you really need to do is get them disgusted enough with politicians and say they're all the same so that they don't punish them uh, when politicians lie or, or try to distort the truth.
0: Are both now acceptable alternative fact and fact? Uh, will we ever see that? Uh,
1: no, I mean I I mean we'll have to I don't think it'll we'll ever be acceptable to people. I mean people do set standards, but whether they uh if they figure that all the parties are doing the same thing, then uh, it ceases to be a point on which they can make a distinction. But I mean, uh, similarly, when Kathleen Wynne talked about stretch goals a year or two ago, I mean, people said, "Well, what is that?" I mean, that's essentially having told people a lie. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I think people can tell the difference. But the question is whether they actually believe that there's uh, a set of choices where they could choose uh, politicians or parties that would actually tell something closer to the truth
0: is the line moving
1: uh i think the politicians have realized that they can get away with more than they thought they could get away with so in that sense uh they're willing to push against uh this idea that they have to be some basis of truth in what they're doing i mean i think we always i mean people always said politicians lie i don't know if that's true or not but we knew that they were selective with the truth right that there might be some basis of truth in Mm -hmm. what they were saying, but they might not give the counter arguments, they might embellish a bit they might push it a bit further than it could go uh, i think now we see politicians begin to realize that they could tell things that aren't true and they might not get punished And so i think that's where the change has been uh... they think they can get away and that the public won't uh, make the distinction i mean we had uh, the organizer for, for one of the mem- uh, one of the people running for the conservative leadership the other week putting out a patently false story and when uh... When confronted on it, he said, Well, it was just an electoral strategy to try and figure out who had joined the Conservative Party but wasn't really a Conservative. You know, there was a time when uh, there would have been a price to pay for that, where people said, Well, that's a good strategy, maybe, uh, but it's not uh, in the public interest, and so, you know, you should resign. But uh, it seems like uh, there's not a sense that citizens can really hold politicians to that standard or people around politics to that standard anymore the politicians are going to push further
0: so are there ethics are there standards is there character
1: well I mean that's really determined by the people at the ballot box I mean I'm I'm I'm, I mean I find that a lot of what uh, politicians are doing now is really problematic but if people don't punish them when the, the election time comes if they aren't willing to make the distinction between the gross lie and the simple embellishment uh, yeah. Then, then there's really no standard. So the standard is what we make of it as citizens. If we demand our politicians uh, be forthright with us, if we demand that they do not make up their own facts and news, uh, then maybe we can establish that standard. But if, if we elect them after they do so, well, then that standard is gone.
0: Uh, obviously, Trump's press secretary came out and said that, this, that more people attended this inauguration than in any in history, which is just bizarre considering the historic moment of the election of the first black president in the United States with Barack Obama. Uh, then, you know, had a love-in with the CIA saying that the whole thing uh, about uh, the fight between the media and, or sorry, uh, the intelligence agencies and Trump was all fabricated by the media, even though there's Trump, or sorry, there's Twitter Trumps right there that, that clearly say that he's comparing them to Nazis. How can you stand up in front of people with a straight face and say that?
2: Yeah, I don't know.
0: I was looking at all the other people in the room trying to figure out what their reaction was. It, was, it looked like they were all smirking, like they, they couldn't believe it. Well, I mean, it's a show of
1: narcissism. I mean, we have the gentle form of uh, the selfie-taking prime minister, right, who can't get enough of, uh, you know, having his picture taken with other people. Uh, I mean, this is a slightly more malignant form, maybe, uh, in the United States. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a dog that's caught the car uh, and then, you know, upset that it wasn't the best car. and Maybe he wanted a faster one. I don't know. But uh, uh, it does lead to this uh, really bizarre situation where, I mean, you would expect a president-elect I mean, obviously, to govern for his party and to govern for the platform that he put before the people, but usually, the first step of an incoming uh, president, as with an incoming prime minister, is to say that he's going to rule for all the people I mean obviously, in so doing, he's going to be uh, you know following the ideas he put before them, uh, but some sort of recognition of unify of a unifying moment uh, It's very odd to take this other uh, position to really say, well, if there's anyone who's in disunity that they're somehow uh, I don't know. Almost uh, uh, acting against the interests of the republic. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's a very odd presidency. But I mean, people remarked when he gave his convention speech in the summer that it was a very dark speech, perhaps the darkest speech that ever heard of someone being nominated uh, for the presidential nomination of a major party in the United States. And it seems again this very kind of paranoid uh, outlook has uh, transitioned into the early days of the presidency.
0: Uh, Let's move provincially. Uh, Kathleen Wynne uh, writes an open letter to correct uh, Kevin Leary on some of his facts. So she says, uh, what does it say when Kathleen Wynne, the Ontario Premier, is weighing in on a federal Conservative leadership candidate?
1: Uh, To me, it was very odd. Uh, I mean, it was a bit uh, like punching below your weight. I don't know exactly how you would uh, consider why a Premier of a province would uh, get involved in the leadership uh, debate of another party. Uh, in a way it diminishes the premier and makes her look uh, less important uh, than she is. I mean, the premier of Ontario uh, certainly not; uh, shouldn't be getting involved in uh, sort of the minor affairs of a federal provi- uh, political party, especially one that isn't her own. I mean, clearly uh, she's trying to find a way to promote a provi- positive vision of her leadership and of Ontario. And uh, it's kind of hard to do that for her when she's so constantly embattled uh, in provincial uh, in the provincial realm, so I think part of the reason of this letter was to try and find a way, uh, if you like, to rally her support. The people who supported her in the last election, the people who supported her for the leadership of the Liberal Party, to remind them that you know what does she stand for. And so I mean, it gives her a, a platform to put that forward. But again, uh, one a bit of an odd choice of target. I mean, it's true uh, Kevin O'Leary did write a couple of open letters to her in the Toronto Sun uh, in 2016. Uh, but a year later, to reply in this manner, it struck me as a bit odd.
0: Does this sort of thing backfire? Does it just draw more attention to his candidacy?
1: Uh, well, I guess it depends on how much of a spotlight you think Kathleen Wynne provides anyone in 2017. I mean, I'm not sure that, uh, I mean, obviously it must help him a bit. I mean, in, within the Conservative Party, you can say he's annoying the right people, um, But I I can't really see it having a a huge impact for him. I mean, overall, I think the extent of people's attention uh, to what Kevin O'Leary had said in the past, the making him into a, you know, a potential Canadian Trump probably gives him a lot more spotlight and platform than you'd have otherwise for someone, you know, who's never held elective office, uh, was not a Canadian, you know, did not really live in Canada in recent years. uh, Uh, You know, why he'd be taken seriously as a leadership candidate of the Conservative Party was a bit of a head-scratcher to me. Uh, But if everyone puts his attention on him, obviously he suddenly becomes a front-runner.
0: Will alternative facts make their way north of the border?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I think we saw that in the Kelly Leach campaign, where her campaign manager, you know, put out a, a patently false story. Uh, and then step. I mean, he ultimately then admitted that it was f- false. So I guess it wasn't quite alternative facts. But uh, nevertheless, to you know, have promoted a, a false story in the news strikes me as a pretty significant breaking with the Canadian tradition. Uh, you know, whether we'll see actually alternative facts, the alternative facts. Uh, well, we haven't seen it yet. But I suspect some people will try it uh, to the extent that uh, if it seems to be successful in the United States uh, as a way of mobilizing the base of your supporters, uh, you know, regardless of the real nature of reality. uh, I suspect we'll see some people try it at at some point.
0: All right, Peter Graves has been with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Uh, Fascinating times. Thank you, Peter. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A couple of things uh, in regard to uh, the first couple of days of the Donald Trump presidency. And it, uh, it started with comments on the uh, inauguration and the size of the crowd. We'll get to that in just a sec. Um, and, and basically that uh, the crowds were bigger than, than what everybody was reporting. Uh, there's two issues here, whether this is even important or not, and why a press secretary or the president would, would donate time to this. And the other is uh, another term called alternative facts. So when the press secretary said the things that he did say, uh, Kellyanne Conway, counsel for President Trump, um, basically said that the press secretary was using alternative facts. Uh, Let's start first with we will start first with the press secretary and his comments on uh, what he saw as the crowd size. For the uh, inauguration,
3: this was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration. Period, both in person and around the globe. Even the New York Times printed a a photograph showing that a, a misrepresentation of the crowd in the original tweet in their paper, which showed the full extent of the support, depth, and crowd and intensity that existed. These attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way, in one particular tweet, to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the Mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past the grass eliminated this visual. This was also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in inaugurations past. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted. No one had numbers because the National Park Service, which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. The President is committed to unifying our country, and that was the focus of his inaugural address. This kind of dishonesty in the media, the challenging that bringing about our nation together is making it more difficult. There's been a lot of talk in the media about the responsibility to hold Donald Trump accountable. And I'm here to tell you that it goes two ways. We're gonna hold the press accountable as well. So,
0: uh, yeah, so that was his uh, first press conference, uh, debating the size of the people that showed up to watch him become president. Uh, Then, of course, when asked about this on uh, on a uh, news show, uh, Kellyanne Conway, the counsel for Donald Trump said use the term alternative fact. Here's how she explains it. Excuse and it's me, still it does out not
4: there. excuse, and you did not answer the question. I did th- answer the no, you question. No, you did not. You did yes, not answer did. the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on it doesn't. day don't one. Be so,
3: don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean
0: Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Mm.
3: Alternative facts, four of the five facts he uttered. The hey, one Chuck thing he White? got right hey, was
0: Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. That's Chuck Todd from NBC's Meet the Press. Uh, weird times we're living in. Let's bring in Michael Turcott. He is uh, the president, or sorry, professor emeritus of communication studies and political science, authority on communication, public opinion, and media polling, University of Michigan, and is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Pretty good. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. What are your thoughts? I'll ask you right right out. What is an alternative fact?
2: Uh, an alternative fact is a piece of information that someone wants to use uh, to describe or explain something that happened uh, in, in the real world, uh, and it happens to suit their uh, particular uh, political stance or strategic interest.
0: Is it true?
2: Well, I think the way the term is uh, being used in the last 48 hours uh, the answer is not necessarily.
0: Uh, is this a new term?
2: Well, it's uh, it's a new phrase. Uh, I think that was popularized by Kellyanne Conway. It's not really different conceptually than, for example, spin, which is a favorable interpretation of uh, some event that you know has occurred. But uh, it's taken on some additional urgency because it does incorporate the word fact.
0: But it seems that, uh, you know, uh, spin and, and alternative fact are different. You know, spin still starts from the same fact. It's just one person spins it one, one way, one sp- per- person spins it the other way. It seems like we're not even agreeing on the star- at the starting point with this. The facts are different or one's correct, one isn't.
2: Well, the, alternatives, uh, the alternative spins can produce alternative facts in a sense. But uh, I think that uh, spin often involves what we call framing, uh, setting a kind of uh, interpretive prism on an event, whereas an alternative fact is a statement that could be demonstrably true or false. And in the case of the events over the weekend, uh, they have proven to be overwhelmingly demonstrably false.
0: Is an alternate fact a spin that's gone too far?
2: Well, I think it's uh, <clears throat> you have to take the strategy of the Trump administration into account. During the campaign, a central element of the Trump campaign was to question the validity and the reliability of the media and the reports that they produce. And uh, he might have adjusted that view either through his own statements or Sean Spicer's uh, after taking office, but now it looks like he isn't going to. So um, this is part of an organized attack on the credibility of the press which is meant to raise doubts about what is reported in the media, uh, especially things that question actions or motives of the trump administration
0: but wouldn't you and and would be the re- what would be the reasoning for that other than to create confusion and perhaps allow you to do something that maybe people won't question
2: well um You know, governing from a, an executive perspective, from the perspective of the President of the United States, involves maintaining public support. And, uh, you, you can think about that concept in a variety of ways, but, but one of them, given where the Trump, uh, administration, or Donald Trump personally stands now, is to minimize any further erosion of support. So to raise these questions among is a way to bolster or maintain uh, his, uh, the low level, the lowest level of support, and then hopefully try to build on that in the future.
0: All right, let's talk about two situations this weekend: the press secretary and the size of the inauguration and the CIA meeting. Uh, starting with the press secretary saying that it was the biggest inauguration uh, ever. Uh, you know, uh, alternative fact, spin, whatever. Are people buying that? I mean, especially when we just come off a presidency of the first black president.
2: Well, uh, I I, I want to return eventually to the to two broad issues of credibility and accountability that th- this is all related to. But it, this specific claim that was made by the press secretary. Was demonstrably false by a number of alternative measures. It was uh, false by the estimates of crowd size. It was false by the number of riders in the metro system in Washington. Um, and then uh, there's an element of this that also included the television audience. And uh, historical data showed that this was probably the third largest uh, viewership. So the problem with these uh alternative facts is that there was an empirical basis multiple empirical bases for assessing their their validity and they just don't hold up to these checks
0: uh so that it it was how it started then of course uh the meeting with the cia it's no secret how uh Trump has felt about the intelligence agencies and intelligence agencies and such. Uh, so then he has a meeting with the CIA and basically professes his, his love for them, and says that the uh, the rift that that's been created between uh, the intelligence agencies and Trump is something that the media has fabricated. How can you possibly say that? after the tweets I mean he hasn't he didn't use the mainstream media he he tweeted all of this and the mainstream media was quick quick to point that out Uh, especially when he's using the term Nazis how does he stand up there in front of everybody and keep a straight face
2: well the problem here is slightly different than uh, the one with the size of the crowds at the inauguration because uh, with regard to the inauguration crowds that was an external validation with regard to the comments he made at the CIA, he had his own words uh, recorded in the tweets uh, as uh, an, al- an alternative description of how he felt about the intelligence community. The optics were also bad there because he uh, was set up with uh, uh, a podium and a microphone in, in front of this wall of honor mm-hmm. uh, with you know with the stars uh, that that uh, honored uh, deceased members of the intelligence uh, community. So he was given a script uh, on a teleprompter and he probably would have been fine if he had been brief and stayed to the script. But then in a style that he uses frequently, he wandered from the script and added extemporaneous comments. Those are the parts that got him in trouble.
0: How does the CIA interpret all that?
2: I don't know. I I don't work for the CIA and I I don't know anybody in the CIA, but it must be very disconcerting, especially to the leadership um, that provides him with the briefings and interacts with them uh, in confidence and then has seen the tweets and has commented on them and then heard this set of comments at headquarters.
0: Uh, You talked earlier about touching on accountability. Where are we heading with this?
2: Well, I mean, I think that this is uh, serious in two, uh, you know, in two domains. First of all, the press secretary has to uh, interact with the uh, press corps um, every single day, either formally or informally. And for the press secretary to start out by trying to promote these uh, falsehoods, which are easily verified by, by journalists, is a, is a real bad way to begin that relationship. Um, so the credibility of the administration uh, with the journalists is at stake. But um, the news that comes out of the uh, White House also is related to the credibility of the United States, more broadly speaking, in terms of uh, other countries and relations with Uh, Other countries and other organizations. So, when the credibility of the White House, uh, which is really the entire American government, the president is the spokesperson for the American government, um, uh, has questions of credibility, that's important. Then, the second point is that the, the main function of a press corps is to report on what happens, and then, secondly, to hold the administration accountable by being asked, being able to ask questions about why they're adopting certain policies, or uh, what the intent of certain policies is, or what the details of certain policies are, and if the uh, decision of the Trump administration is to try to communicate with the public directly through tweets, these little short bursts, and to circumvent the press corps. Um, that is uh, something that has pretty dire consequences for the principle of accountability.
0: So do we know moving forward what the agenda will be of the press secretary? Will it be normal, everyday briefings as it has been in the past, or will things change?
2: Uh, Some things are pretty clearly going to change uh, uh, because they are now at the White House... Through the uh, uh, communication director's office is in, is admitting non-traditional news organizations to the Washington press corps, uh, and that includes websites, some of which um, have produced fake news. So that that's one issue. The composition is going to change. The composition of the Washington White House press corps is going to change, uh, but. Um, a second issue is whether uh, or how the press secretary is going to continue to interact with the press corps. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's only had one formal uh, press conference and he uh, a briefing, I should say, and he's about to have a second one. I think it takes place at one thirty, and we'll have to see what the tone and the interaction is there. I mean, it it's very early in the administration, and it's very early. Uh, too soon, maybe, to tell what the uh, regular interaction between uh, the press secretary and the press corps is going to be. But it's not off to a good start.
0: Uh, The attitude seems to be, at least during the beginning, and, and, you know, it is only the first day, uh, that the the administration here plays tough to try to uh, neutralize or at least put... Uh, those who may be opponents on their back feet, trying to neutralize them through, um, almost through fear. Do you see that here?
2: Well, it's a strategy that was very effective during the campaign. Yeah, And uh, the whole concept of being an anti-establishment candidate and talking about draining the swamp, um, you know, worked to his advantage. But the basic question is, whether that's any way to run a government and to communicate about government policy and government actions. That's the real question now.
0: As you mentioned, you know, the first time out for the press secretary and and obviously the first couple of days for Donald Trump, uh, why the reaction to things like the size of the press corps, or sorry, the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Um, again, at a time where you know people are protesting, and perhaps some calm and comfort is needed, he, he just seems to be creating more frenzy. Why look backwards? He's won the election. He's the king. He's in. He's the grand poobah. Why continually fight the campaign?
2: Uh, I think the answer has got something to do with. Uh, the psychology of Donald Trump and uh, why he or how he reacts to criticism. And it's important to note that uh, Sean Spicer didn't speak contemporaneously. He read from a prepared statement. Mm -hmm. So this was drafted by uh, probably a group of people with uh, Donald Trump's uh, direction uh, inside the office of the president. So These represent, I think, more um, the president's own views and reactions to the coverage than to a a more general uh, institutional reaction. But, again, we'll have to see how that plays out in the next several days.
0: Uh, Thin skin and obviously a a large ego, will that come back to bite him? I mean, we saw a tweet earlier on the weekend about the march saying to these women, why didn't they vote? And then, of course, an hour or so later uh, saying, oh, it's great, you know, to be able to live in a democracy where people can protest. Uh, Are people filtering him?
2: Well, uh, it looks like they are in retrospect. I mean, as long as he holds on to his own phone, and is able to send his own tweets. We're likely to see a sequence where the first is his own reaction, and then often there's a follow-up, which is uh, m- more muted in tone and content. Um, but he's he's clearly sending some unfiltered messages.
0: Uh, are these just growing pains uh, of a new job? I mean, obviously, going from uh, you know pretty much a self uh proclaimed uh, billionaire, head of his own company, calling his own shots. Now, of course, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Are these growing pains, or is this a sign of things to come?
2: Well, in a, in a, in a you know, realistic way, the answer is we don't know yet. Um, but this is a person who has no experience governing and doesn't uh, have any experience interacting either uh, with the public or from the perspective of uh, an entire institution of government behind him. So we can hope that he learns to moderate this behavior, but we we don't have any guarantee yet.
0: Michael Trogot has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan. Michael, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good to chat, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, one of the first things Donald Trump said he wanted to do was to renegotiate NAFTA. Is this a bad thing? Why is everybody getting so up in arms? Uh, Many are saying after 25 years, it's time for an update anyway. To talk more about all of this, Dan Cheriak is with us, Center for International Governance Innovation, senior fellow expert on innovation and trade Uh, 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 on trade research, and is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, We really do appreciate this. This was Donald Trump's uh, latest take on trade. Let us us play this for you. A company that
2: wants to fire all of its people in the United States and build some factory someplace else and then thinks that that product is going to just flow across the border into the United States, that's not going to happen.
0: All right, uh, Dan, your thoughts. Uh, is it time for an update on this anyway, or is this a time for people to be scared, very scared?
4: <laughs> well, it, it, Scott, the question is, what comes next? Obviously, the um, the model of, of economic uh, governance that the United States has right now is not working very well to the satisfaction of Mr. Trump, and obviously to the electorate that put him in in a rejection vote of, of the status quo. Um, so, but in terms of uh, as, as a trade agreement, if you're renegotiating uh, NAFTA, we just basically spent eight years doing that in the, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, trade agreements go into a lot of detail about the nuts and bolts of of a trade regime. And that's all been settled to to the satisfaction of all the trade experts and and Mr. Trump just tossed that one out. So the real question is, you know, the the train is rolling on on the um on the NAFTA negotiation but we don't have a very good idea of the destination at the moment.
0: He 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 talks uh very aggressively saying that, you know, it's either this or we scrap it. Is that designed to immediately put uh his uh uh, the people opposing him are on the other side, back on their feet, thinking this is these are going to be extremely tough negotiations, and perhaps lowered their standard of what they may accept at one point
4: that's certainly uh, my, uh, very much in the speculation that this is sort of all the art of the deal that you you know threaten to walk away from the from the deal to get a better uh, offer from from the other side. Um, the interesting thing about this uh, Scott, is that if you take a look at the TPP from which Mr. Trump just walked away. You don't have the other 11 lining up to do the deal by themselves. It was already a deal that was uh, not sufficiently in their favor that they would just go ahead and do it. So um, the real question is is there enough for other countries to give that uh, to, to, to actually satisfy the, the request that the Mr. Trump might be making, which we don't know yet? Um, so uh, it certainly creates a lot of uncertainty.
0: So where does that leave the TTP, and is this just another bargaining tool for him?
4: Uh, at the moment, the TPP is off the table, and as I said, uh, we don't see uh, sort of a rush for the, uh, the other 11 parties to sign. In terms of the NAFTA, uh, I think there's, you know, there are some indications of things that, that um, might be coming. Um, clearly, uh, from the perspective of, of uh, deal-making, Mr. Trump thinks that the United States has a stronger hand dealing one-on-one. And I, he's absolutely correct in that. Uh, for example, uh, NAFTA features binational panels, which are so sort of ind- independent panels, which then ad- adjudicate uh, disputes. Uh, Mr. Trump does not want to have those kinds of panels in place, so they're, they would be gone in, in a renegotiated NAFTA. Uh, there's other aspects about technical aspects about sort of what qualifies uh, for the you know, preferential tariffs under NAFTA, rules of origin. And the TPP, interestingly enough, liberalized those, so presumably NAFTA, the renegotiated NAFTA would narrow those, make, make things tighter. You wouldn't be able to use Chinese parts uh, in a Canadian car, to, uh, which you can then sell to the United States at, uh, without tariffs. So there are some indications of what that might be, but largely speaking, uh, it, 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 we remain to see what the actual marching orders are and, what, and how the trade negotiators would interpret those.
0: It's interesting how you use the term "marching orders." Um, was NAFTA in need of a freshening up anyway?
4: It, well, from a standpoint of view of the the uh, daily commerce across the Canada-U.S. border, for example, uh, there's not a lot that you can do to improve. It's a very well-oiled machine. Uh, there were, and, and we did some work on on uh, uh, the uh, what the, the actual technical changes in the Trans-Pacific Partnership would mean for Canada-U.S. trade and they were basically negligible. So the the, the scope to improve NA, NAFTA, if you put in place all the modern technical language of the TPP, would not mean a, a huge amount. Uh, so there's not much that, that's required. Bottom line is, there's not a lot in Canada-US trade that needs fixing. And I think that this will, will become very evident as the negotiators sit down to renegotiate.
0: Uh, you you uh, alluded to earlier, uh, we were chatting about how he almost creates a, a panic, in a sense, as a negotiation strategy, exaggerating uh, perhaps his point. Uh, at what point do the, negos- the people in these negotiations see that and 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 factor that into their negotiations? At what point do they say, "Well, you know, that's Donald. He's a big blowhard. He always does this."
4: I think that everyone sees that right away and mm-hmm. it's, that's already sort of on on the table we uh this is much in discussion and the real question then is what is the uh, the outcome of this deal what's the what is at stake now for example if you were to look at Canada US what are the things that the United States has on its shall we say bitch list <laughs> uh in terms of what it wants from Canada and they, they the, the US uh, trade representative uh, draws up a list of things that the United States uh stakeholders complain about different countries. So from Canada, what they want to limit softwood lumber imports. They want some very minor technical changes to the way Canada administers its intellectual property laws. Uh, they might come after uh Canada's cultural uh uh limits on you know for 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 broadcasting. Uh they want more dairy access. Uh and, and that's really about it. There's not much more. So uh, if we were to say, what's the end point of a Canada-U.S. renegotiation, it would look very much like today. And the other thing to bear in mind is that when Canadian uh, negotiators sit down with U.S. negotiators, there's a lot of history there, a lot of goodwill, a lot of knowledge about each other's economies. The U.S. negotiators basically know what we can give in terms of political uh, limits. And uh, and we've talked about these things for eons. So my expectation is that after all the uh, storm and drang uh, of, of this uh, negotiation, the Canada-US trade will continue on pretty much as it is, and uh, and that the, the renegotiated NAFTA or, or, or trade, whatever uh, uh, name that this new trade agreement will have, will function very much like the present one. At the same time, I think Mr. Trump has thrown a lot of uncertainty into the works, and uncertainty is a trade cost. That will give pause for companies for a long time.
0: Obviously, this was a big part of his election campaign. Uh, is it that big a deal in the sense that, you know, I've talked to many business professors that said, yes, it was just time to do this anyway. Uh, he, he's just made, you know, the whole jobs thing a, a part of it and, and, and looped it all in that, that, that now it's a priority of, uh, of uh, you know, of some means. Is it? Was it that big a deal? Is it well, going to make that much of a difference to either economy?
4: I don't think it's in the trade agreement, Scott. Um, the system itself right now is, is, is broken in a different way. Uh, if you take a look at, for example, you know, the, the, the interest rates, they've been basically zero or negative in real terms for the better part of a decade. And that's unusual. It's, it's abnormal. So if you think about a company that's hiring or that, that wants to expand, it can hire a worker, pay a positive real wage, then pay all the social security things that go along with that, or it can hire a machine for basically zero. So why would a company hire a costly worker rather than, than buy the investing in a machine with the carrying cost of capital is basically nil? And that's the basic problem with our world today. Uh and this has got to do with monetary policy. It's not got to do with trade. Mm. If we had if we had if, if workers could compete fairly with machines, I think we would see a very different landscape out there. Uh, but this is not what's in, in uh, right now in, in, in the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist says it's globalization that's the problem. And myself, I think that they've got that wrong.
0: <laughs> how, do you, how do you turn that around? How do you, how do you have that discussion?
4: Well, very much, we, we, if there's a, a talk about sort of globalization is, is, is past its peak and... and, and talk about or sort of what will replace it. Uh, and certainly we know, and, and there's, you know, you'll see references to things like the gig economy, right, where no one has a steady job. Everyone's going from, uh, from contract to contract. Uh, this kind of, of, of an economy uh, may or may not function uh, with you know, guaranteed answers, uh, annual incomes for everyone
1: mm-hmm.
4: uh, and so forth. But we've never had an experience of uh, trying to manage an economy that way. Uh, and so the real question is, how do you organize yourself for a world in which technology is constantly destroying jobs, where even trade destroys jobs? And now what we have also is monetary policy is destroying jobs. So we need a rebalancing, um, and, and we need to come to, to, to find a solution for uh, that works for uh, society, that works for workers, that works for, you know, the the, the public sector which provides the infrastructure uh, for, for the economy, and it also works for business. Hmm. Uh, and it, we, we don't have the conceptual groundwork laid for this, Scott. I think it's going to be a, a very challenging time coming.
0: Do you think globalization is peaked, or we can just see the end coming?
4: Uh, the old model of globalization, I think, is peaked and, and is... Uh, in trouble right now, and I think the, you you can see all kinds of uh, indicators just going off the charts. You know, financialization of the economy it's it's phenomenal. Uh, you know, interest rates are going through the floor, income distribution is going through the roof. Uh, systems like like a complex systems like ours need to keep all these things in balance, in balance, and 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 they're going off the charts, and that's an indication that that things are are, are going awry.
0: Now, is the does the rebalancing mean going back to uh, protectionist times, or just moving to a more socialistic sort of economy?
4: I don't think it means protectionism because because I don't think trade is the problem and. In terms of of, of socialistic, uh, I I wouldn't use that term whatsoever. What I think is required is that the the relationship between capital and labor has to be rebalanced. And, you know, Thomas Piketty wrote about this, uh, uh, to some extent, talking about the role of capital. Uh, But in, in my conception of this, Scott, what we need is to have the price of capital has to be real, has to be positive, has to reflect actual risk. And I think then workers can compete. And then we will actually have the, the economy sort of moving back in, into kilter. I think it also means that we have to have recognize the role of public goods. Um, you know, in, in, in production, sort of a company produces with capital and labor, right? And it works in the context, which is, you know, the, your infrastructure and, and the, the set of rules and so forth. Well, we buy our machines like, say, the uh, Chinese do from the Germans or the Swiss. We pay the same dollar for that. Our workers are more expensive. Mm -hmm. So the only way that we can compete as a nation is if our public goods are superior. Mm -hmm. Now, having public goods means you have to have more public spending on infrastructure, on logistics, on really good IT and so forth. And that will then enable our private sector companies to compete on, on a level playing field with countries that have cheaper labor. That means more taxes, and that means more public goods. And here's a here's a thing to put in 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 sort of in play. You know, most of us, if you look at your closet, you've got tons and tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, more pairs of blue jeans and you know and t-shirts and whatnot hanging around. We're not actually in dire need of more stuff. What we really need is better services. And that's where the tax dollar comes in. So we need to think about not about cutting taxes, but about how to actually raise the, the, the funds from the public to provide the public goods that we need to be competitive. And that, and that I think, is a, a, a bit of a, a, of a mind bender for most people.
0: What will it take for that to happen or something like that to happen, Dan? I mean, will there have to be a crash of some sort, a complete starting from ground up?
4: Well, historically, big changes uh, occur when only when a system is pushed uh, uh, into crisis. You had, you know, America's New Deal happened after the Great Depression. Uh, hopefully, we, we don't have to go through something like that. We've gone through something called the Great Recession. We haven't had sort of significant growth for a decade. And at the end of that decade of, of, of slower non-growth, You've had things like Brexit. You've had things like, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Trump phenomenon. You've got right-wing parties coming to power in, in Europe. So we know the system is, is cracking and hasn't yet cracked. We haven't gone into a big uh, depression. But the possibility of that happening is very real. And so I think, obviously, myself as a, as a policy wonk, I'd much rather that we think this through, identify the problems, and, and make course corrections um, deliberately and safely rather than steer into the ditch and then have to try and, get, and pull ourselves out.
0: How do things like the U.S. election affect what you're talking about, especially when they are talking about more protectionist measures?
4: Well, I think they're talking about the wrong things in the States on, on protectionism. Um, and I can give you an example, uh, which hopefully would you know, uh, clarify things. You know, the United States runs a trade deficit with the world, and it's around 2% of GDP. Now, but the United States also supplies the world with the currency that is used for all international transactions. The U.S. dollar is on one side of about 88% of all international financial transactions, and that means there's a lot of dollars that have to be out there in the world to grease the wheels of global finance. Now, the U.S. can provide those dollars to the rest of the world by uh, by buying goods from them or by investing right? and the u.s. right now the model is to is to buy goods from the rest of the world so, and the rest of the world doesn't use those dollars to go back and buy u.s. goods they use it to do international commerce mm. so for u.s. companies this is a wonderful advantage because they get to deal internationally in their own currency they face no currency risk Everyone else, Canadian companies, when we do international business, we deal in U.S. dollars. We write contracts in U.S. dollars, and then if the dollar moves, we wind up either having too little or maybe we get a windfall benefit, but we face currency risk. U.S. companies don't. That's a huge advantage. And for that advantage, the U.S. has to run a current account deficit, and that's just simply uh, unavoidable. So Mr. Trump complains about the trade deficit, the current account deficit, but I'm sure he would not give up this exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar having its role in the world. So the, the, the U.S. discussion is misguided because of that. They don't under, the, it, the, the people who are talking about this do not understand the relationship between the, the role of the dollar in the world and the U.S. trade deficit.
0: Are you confident in the people he has in place making these decisions or doing these negotiations?
4: Well, the, the, the professional staff at, at U.S.C. are certainly uh, old hands. The, uh, the, the new uh, so, you know, cabinet members, uh, it's, he's hired in the blue bloods, uh, all billionaires and multimillionaires. And uh, uh, the question is how they will uh, 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 basically give marching orders, as I said, before to, to, the, to the staff. What, what is it that they think is wrong that needs to be fixed? They're not policy wonks by, by background. They're businessmen. Uh, and uh, the question what, what will resonate with them in terms of what will make sense to them uh, as, uh, in, in terms of structuring new trade deals, that remains to be seen.
0: Dan has is with the Center for International Governance, Innovation, uh, and, of course, Senior Fellow Expert on Innovation and Trade Research. Dan, thank you for the time and insight. Fascinating discussion. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.